Welcome back to another edition of Hipster Baseball Podcast, HBP number 110. 110, we've made it, people. I'm Dorian, and on today's podcast, we ask, will the Tampa Bay Rays go undefeated? And special guest Eli Sussman, managing editor at Fish Stripes, talks about the Miami Marlins and Miami's best radio station, WVUM. But first, what are you drinking, Dorian? Who cares? We're going to go straight to the topic. I'm joking. Of course, I'm always going to tell you what I'm drinking, baby. I have in my hand a 24K. It's called a 24K, which is a golden ale from a good New York local brewery called the Bronx Brewery in Manhattan, New York. Do we call it Manhattan or do we call it the Bronx? Let's just say it's in New York. <laughs> and I'm going to have a drink as always. And if you live in the que- if you live in Queens or if you live in Brooklyn, you're prop or you're from or you live. What did I just say? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Brooklyn and Queens, probably a New York Mets fan. But if you live or are from Manhattan or the Bronx, probably New York Yankees fan. What about Staten Island? What about Staten Island? Anyways, look, let's be serious here, people. There's a lot of New Yorkers in Tampa Bay, Florida. And if you didn't know this, there's a local New York television channel called New York One. And that, it's a local channel, just like your own local news. New York One is actually shown, is part of the cable package in the Tampa Bay area. <laughs> it's crazy. That's how many New Yorkers there are who either retire or just have moved since COVID. It's crazy. And as and obviously you Yankee fans know, the Tampa, the Tampa Tarpons, which is the high A or the low A, I don't know. It's one of the minor league teams for the New York Yankees organization, the Tampa Tarpons, which I've been to their stadium. It's actually pretty nice. It's in Tampa, obviously, because George Steinbrenner loved Tampa. It, the stadium is called George Steinbrenner Stadium or whatever his, whatever his middle name was. Steinbrenner Stadium is right across the street from whatever the name of the Tampa Bay Buccaneer Stadium is. Raymond James Stadium. I always want to thank the crack HBP bullpen who who are right on top of it. Anyways, we're not here to talk about New York or the Bronx or Daryl Strawberry. We're here to talk about the Tampa Bay Rays who lead the American League East Division with a perfect 13-0 record. If the Tampa Bay Rays were playing college football, they'd already be in the national championship game. (laughs) Right now, the Rays just tied the longest winning streak to start a Major League Baseball season. They're tied with the 1982 Atlanta Braves, go Braves, and the 1987 Milwaukee Brewers. Do you realize only cool things that happened in the 80s? Nothing bad happened in the 1980s. Only super cool things like Back to the Future and Pizza Hut with their reading program where if you read, I think, one book, they would give you a sticker and then you would go to Pizza Hut and redeem it for a personal pan pizza. This is obviously back when people actually would go to Pizza Hut. I don't remember the last time I even saw an open Pizza Hut. But again, we're not here to talk about Pizza Hut and Ronald McDonald. We're here to talk about the Tampa Bay Rays. But and allegedly, the longest winning streak to start a professional baseball league is 20 wins, 20 and 0, by the 1884 St. Louis Maroons of the Union Association. 1884, I mean, these are guys who would go play baseball if they got out of time, they got out in time from the mines, if they managed to do all their farming in time. I mean, these weren't professional players. These were just, look, if we got in the time machine, you and I could go play against the 1884 St. Louis Maroons and whoop their booties and end their their winning streak. We're going to play a little Jeopardy game, okay? Let's bring back the ghost of Alex Trebek. The category, 1884. The question for $1,000. This person ascended to the presidency after the assassination of James A. Garfield. Ring, Alex? Who is Chester A. Arthur? Ding, 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 ding. Dorian just won $1,000. Chester A. Arthur was president of the United States when the St. Louis Maroons, basically a bunch of miners, farmers, and drunks, won the first 20 games of the Uni Association. <laughs> I don't put any I don't put any stock into that nonsense. The Rays have tied the longest Major League Baseball winning streak to start a season. My real question is, are the Rays going to equal the ridiculous start of the 1984 Detroit Tigers? If you don't know this, 
1984 Detroit Tigers started the season. They started the season. The first 40 games, they lost 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. The first 40 games, the Detroit Tigers won 35 times and only lost 4 games. That is bonkers. That's my real question. Will the Rays be able to better that Detroit Tigers start, start from 1984? I think they will. I'm going to put it right here. I'm bringing back Miss Cleo. I think the Tampa Bay Rays are going to beat the Detroit Tigers start and win like 36 games of their first 40. By the way, that 1984 Tigers team, they won the World Series. The 1982 Braves that started out with 13 consecutive wins, they won the division but lost in the National League Championship Division. Excuse me. There was no division series back then. The National League Championship Series. And the 1987 Milwaukee Brewers, even though they started out with 13 consecutive wins, they only made it to 91 and 71, and they didn't even win the division. Pretty bad. So will the Rays win the World Series? Look, history tells us it's all over the place. The Tigers won the World Series. The Braves lost in the National League Championship Series. And the Brewers didn't even make it to the playoffs. <laughs> and you're asking yourself, how in the world are the Tampa Bay Rays doing this? Because they weren't one of the big spenders offseason. Shocking. Stop me if you've heard that before. Everyone was talking about the San Diego Padres, the New York Mets, the Atlanta Braves. No one was talking about, oh, I wonder how the Tampa Bay Rays are going to do. But I'm going to give you, I'm not going to, I'm going to give you my opinion in a minute, but I'm going to give you the opinion of an actual professional baseball player. Christian Arroyo said about the Rays, quote, they pitch when they need to pitch. They put the ball in play and they drive guys in, end quote. <laughs> Dude, that is the, that is the worst quote. What are you, what, what are you saying? Dude, don't even talk about it. They pitch when they need to pitch. They hit the ball. They hit the ball and they score runs. That's why they've won 13 in a row. <laughs> Dude, that was awful. <laughs> I have no idea sometimes why they even interview some of these baseball players because they're really good at being professional athletes. Sometimes they're really bad at just talking the English. Anyways, I'm going to have a drink. You know, a lot of these haters are saying, oh, the Rays, they're only playing bad teams. Who have they played? Yeah, you're right. They played the Detroit Tigers. Obviously, not the 1984 Detroit Tigers. They're playing the 2023 crappy Detroit Tigers. They've played the horrific Oakland Athletics. They've played the really bad Washington Nationals. And they've played the meh Boston Red Sox. But you know what? The Rays are doing what good teams are supposed to do. You rack up the wins against the bad teams. You don't stub your toe against a team like the Athletics, the Pirates, the Tigers. You don't you don't lose a series to, to one of those teams. You crush them. You get the wins, and then you go and play the big boys. The Rays are doing everything perfect in this sense. I don't care who they're playing. They're beating them, and they're getting every single win. Because remember, the games in April in the regular season count just as much as the games in September. You can't just be like, oh, but so-and-so, they only won the division because they had that big game in the, the beginning of September, that weekend series. No, man. The games in July and April and May count just as much as September. And everyone else in that stacked American League East division has the opportunity to play the Detroit Tigers, the Oakland Athletics, the Washington Nationals, the Red Sox, obviously, being in the American League East. This weekend, the Tampa Bay Rays are going to be playing against the Toronto Blue Jays, who are in sec tied for second place in the American League East division. I love that the Rays are winning with veterans. And they're also winning with rookie pitchers. They gave their they gave the first start to right-handed rookie pitcher Taj Bradley, who was the number one prospect in the Tampa Bay Rays farm system. He pitched against the Boston Red Sox, and he helped win that game just a few days ago, Wednesday, April 12th. Bradley pitched five innings, he gave up five hits, three runs, and he struck out eight. Here's the funny thing about Taj Bradley. His high school in, in Georgia... It's from a town called <laughs> a town called Stone Mountain, Georgia. And the reason I'm laughing is because <laughs> Stone Mountain, Georgia is where Kenneth the Page is from. For any of you who have watched that brilliant NBC series from like, I don't know, like 10 years ago now, I guess. 30 Rock. 
I, I've seen from beginning to end 30 Rock, I think at least twice. I love that TV series, 30 Rock. <laughs> so Kenneth the Page is from Stone Mountain. So maybe Kenneth the Page went to school with Taj, Taj Bradley. I don't know. I'll have to ask Taj. But before I ask Taj, I'm going to have a drink. But besides these veterans, what surprised me the most of seeing some of these Rays games is how crazy efficient the Rays pitchers have been. I'm I'm not I'm not joking. Like if you watch some of these games, the Rays starting pitchers mow through the opposing lineup. What I mean is sometimes they're done with that the opposing lineup in an inning in like 10 9 10 pitches and it's over. It's like all right, boom, Rays are back up to bat. And if you watch a handful of their games, you can tell the pitchers themselves amongst the Tampa Bay Rays, they have like a mini competition of who can get through the lineups faster and more efficient. Because it's like you're sitting and you're watching this, you're, I don't know, having some nuts, you're having a drink, you're doing something else. You may be even distracted for four or five minutes scrolling through your social media. And then you look up and you're like, oh, wow, like what happened? Like what? the Rays are back up to bat or it's a commercial already. <laughs> It's incredible that the Rays pitchers are being unbelievably efficient with their pitch count, getting the opposing batters out, and that creates like again, I'm just reiterating that they're just that creates that competition which is amazing to see. And one of the things that I expected to see from the Rays when you're looking into some of the stats is I thought that the Rays were going to be one of the league leaders in stolen bases. Of course, everyone knows that there's bigger bases now, there's a pitch clock, there's an incentive for teams to steal bases once a runner gets on base. And, for, and also because the Tampa Bay Rays have Randy Rosarena, who Rosarena has never met a base he didn't think he could steal. But I was actually was surprised when I saw the stats is the Rays are right in the middle of the pack. They're out of 30 teams. They're in 14th place when it comes to stolen bases. By the way, speaking of Christian Arroyo and his horrible analysis of why the Rays are, I've won 13 in a row, the Red Sox. If you're a Red Sox fan, the Red Sox catchers, everyone, everyone is running on the Boston Red Sox. I mean, I think it wasn't until I think game 10 or 11 that the Red Sox actually threw out a base stealer. Wow. It's going to be a long season for the Boston Red Sox because everyone is stealing bases on them. The Orioles did it on opening day. I think they they stole like six bases that, that game. The Rays has started to steal bases on them. Wow. It's going to be a long season for any of the Boston fans out there. But... We're not here to talk about Manhattan. We're not here to talk about Boston Red Sox. We're here to talk about the Tampa Bay Rays. And look, the Rays are doing what they need to do. They're cleaning up outside of the American League East. Everyone's going to have a ch- everyone's going to have a have a chance to play all these crappy teams. The Rays are doing what they need to do. That division, the American League East, is a beast. It's probably arguably the best division in Major League Baseball. You can also make it a case for the National League East. Nevertheless, if someone says American League East toughest division in baseball it's true it can be true those wins are going to be hard to come by and these 13 wins that the Rays have already banked they're already four and a half games ahead of the Toronto Blue Jays and the New York Yankees those games are going to be those these wins going to be very valuable in September my last thing is that I'm surprised with the Rays is how many home runs they've been hitting as a team they've hit 33 home runs which is just one home run behind the all-time record of 34 for the first 13 games that it's tied between the 2000 St. Louis Cardinals and the 2019 Seattle Mariners. The Rays never have home run hitters. And I'm just shocked that, that some of the games, they're they're hitting three and four home runs. And I'm like, who are these guys? Because the lack of power is part of the reason that they lost the wild, wild card series last year against the Cleveland Guardians. If any of you people watch those games like I did, I'm sorry. I was so frustrated watching that Cleveland Guardians Tampa Bay Rays wild card series last year. It was boring and it was maddening. And now here we are 13 games into the season and Tampa Bay Rays are like, we are all amazing home run hitters. Good for you. I hope that the Rays beat the Detroit Tigers all time record of the first 40 games of 35 wins and five losses. I raise a glass of delicious 24k from the Bronx brewery and just racking up the wins.
the Rays keep cleaning up with these terrible teams that they're playing. And we also have to clean up, especially when we're at the park. Sometimes you're smiling at someone cute. Maybe you're going to the game with someone cute. Maybe you need to smile to get the beer vendor's attention, to get someone else's attention. This week's podcast is brought to you by the Western Dental Association. It's funny how we hang on to some things. Childhood memories, childhood fears, like going to the dentist. But when you see the dentist before it hurts, it shouldn't hurt to go to the dentist. Visiting the dentist twice a year is the best way to avoid the pain you're afraid of. And it helps you keep something that you really treasure, your beautiful smile. So call your dentist today. And be sure your dentist belongs to the Western Dental Association. Thank you. Cheers. Western Dental Association. I don't know how happy they'll be that I'm drinking this beer. And does it does beer stain your teeth? I don't I don't know. I'll have to ask my dental hygienist. But smiling, drinking New York, Tampa Bay Rays. I just told you that there's a lot of New Yorkers in Tampa. But you know where else there's a lot of expat New Yorkers? In Miami. This week's guest is Eli Sussman, Managing Editor at Fish Stripes. Eli, welcome to Hipster Baseball Podcast. Thanks a lot for the invite, Dorian. Appreciate it. Happy that you're here. And I'm happy to talk about a team I don't talk too much about, which is the Miami Marlins. My my opening question to you is, how does a how does someone from New York end up being a, both a Miami Marlins fan and also working in the Miami Marlins ecosystem? Well, the simplest first connection probably came when I went to the University of Miami for my undergrad studies, came down from New York and went down to Miami. And, and I stayed down there even for a couple of years after graduating, right at around the intersection of when the team rebranded and actually relocated to the new Marlins Park, which was a reasonable driving distance away, being able to experience uh, the first few years of that team down there and just being in that proximity was something that just uh, amused me. I was just very curious about this franchise that even to that point, it had a very bizarre existence. And since then, it's kind of continued to be that exact same way. Uh, in terms of being involved with, with Fish Stripes, that was more of just an, a seizing an opportunity, seizing an opening, filling, like, filling a void, you could say. But this is a team that mainly due to the results on the field, just hasn't had a whole lot of people enthusiastic about covering it through the years. And I'm someone that throughout my life, even before I was affiliated with the Marlins in some way, I've enjoyed writing about the team and talking about the team as well. So they had openings for contributors and in, it didn't really take very long for the people above me, the people that brought me in to move on to other pursuits. And it, it left a void starting with the 2018 season is when there was just this void of leadership at Fish Drives. It had been established before me, but I decided to give it a try running it and building a staff that I thought reflected my values and what fans really wanted from their coverage. And it's gone well enough, at least as a, a group, maybe not for the team itself, but it's gone well enough in terms of uh, our own community at Fish Drives that I've you know stayed in charge and continued to branch out in different directions uh, I always vow that my mood and I don't want other people's moods to be infected by the losing. We feel like we could create a, a fun environment and um, unveil a lot of insight about the team, regardless of the results on the field. Earlier, I think you used the word amusement or amusing about talking about the Marlins. Does that have anything to do with the home run statue that was taken down a few years ago? Was that part of like, what did, what did this weirdo franchise with this? pseudo uh, surrealist art fixture in the in the in the center field does that have anything to do with what you had mentioned earlier i have to say that the whole legacy of that sculpture is a lot different from non-marlins people versus marlins people those actually were at the park on a regular basis they weren't really too worried about seeing that relocated and moved out of the way uh although as we get further away it becomes clear how people uh, from opposing teams and everybody else. when you, It was such a novelty when you saw it only a few times a year. I liked um, it. I, I could tell you that those of us that were used to it, that saw it on the screen every single home game throughout the entire season, uh, kind of got a little tired of it. And it's fun that you bring that up because right now I happen to be reading a sort of a memoir that was written by Jeffrey Loria, who was the owner of the team at the time and who was 
largely responsible for bringing that sculpture in due to his passion for art as well. It's only now that I'm learning a little bit more about what why Loria was so transfixed by that type of, type of that his art style that the sculpture was in. But once he was gone, everybody was willing to turn the page on that. That was something very particular to Loria. And now it's been uh, five plus years since then. People in charge now have uh, different values and they, they try to create like a ballpark environment that they feel is more authentically Miami. They don't want it to be a caricature of what Miami looks like from the outside. They're trying to be a little bit more genuine with that approach. And I think they've done some good things to like upgrade the ballpark experience, even without that thing lurking in left center field. I am a fan of that thing. And by the way, I don't, they still haven't shut down the, well, I don't know what they called anymore. The Clevelander, the, the, the bar club out in left field. Well, so they're still making they have it Miami. You have, you have to keep it's, it Miami. Yeah, it's it's not the, the the Clevelander itself. That's been taken out, and they've replaced it with what they call the recess lounge. It's pretty similar, except without the scantily clad women in there. It's it's like still a club environment, but it's not quite the same. So maybe they have kind of dulled that down a little bit as well. I am not the biggest Marlins fan, but. I genuinely think that now Lone Depot Park, I think it's what it's called now. I genuinely think that's one of the better stadiums that I've been to in Major League Baseball. I've been to most of them on the East Coast. I love the sight lines when you go on the concourse. I love that it's it's it has a retractable roof, even though you probably know better than I do. I don't remember the last time that they actually took off the roof. And I was there for a couple of the World Baseball Classic games just a few weeks ago, and it was awesome. And you were like, why can't the Marlins tap into some of this? And it's it's frustrating because you have a, as you know, you have a huge Latin community, huge baseball fanatics in Miami, but nobody. It's really hard to get people passionate about the Marlins. Is the way the, the same way that they, they, that the people of South Florida are passionate about the Miami Heat and the Miami Dolphins. Yeah, I had the same experience as you at the WBC. I was there for one of the group play stages, not even the ones with the biggest stakes attached to them, um, but yeah. There was it was a doubleheader, and the first one was Israel versus Nicaragua, which was the like I was there intensity game possible. I, I, was, there one, I was I was there. I was that was one of the games that I went to. So I was there, and it was like half full, and it was it was a good atmosphere. But I also came back for the nightcap, which was Venezuela and Puerto Rico that night, and to move back my seats to a much higher level because it was basically sold out. That atmosphere for that game, which was not even a particularly tense game. It was something like different than I've ever experienced before. Somebody that's been to even sold out baseball games played by the Yankees or the Mets or even other franchises, the intensity around that uh, blew me away. I think as the WBC as a whole, there was this uh, for American fans, a lot of people came into it viewing it as just a series of exhibitions, uh, games that don't count. And once you're actually there uh, from both the fans and the players, um, you see that it's the total opposite end of that. This is just a type of international baseball tournament that well, hasn't happened in many years, at least not with fans in attendance due to COVID. Uh, that was that was a really special experience. And I can tell you that is so different from what the park is like the other 81 days a year during the course of the MLB season level intensity there. That's a big problem that they are a big, I wouldn't say problem, it's a big opportunity that they're trying to take advantage of and bring those people back on a consistent basis, uh, the early returns from this base, this major league season so far are that they haven't really quite made as many conversions as they would like. As If the team wins, if the team, it's going to take probably sustained winning over an extended period of time to get people to be that passionate about Marlins as they are about their native countries. Uh, I, you know, absolutely. And I, and I, I don't mean that, you know, to mean to beat up on the Marlins of like, oh, they haven't been able to translate or to change some of the affiliations that you had mentioned earlier of not just rooting for your your country or your familial country. It's I think it's a it's an issue all across Major League Baseball because the fan experience that I had at, with the World Baseball Classic was more organic. And if when you go to Lone Depot Park, when you go to Camden Yards or City Field, it's more of the organization pumping music out, bringing out cheerleaders and like saying, Hey, wake up, get out of your seat, which is a lot different. And, and I think that's what you feel at a, at an international or a fantastic tournament like the WBC. But, and last point I'll, I'll talk about the world baseball classic is for the game, the, the Israel Nicaragua game. I went with, I went with some friends who aren't even baseball fans. 
And in the middle of the game, they were like, they turned to me and said, this is fun. And, you know, as a baseball fan, I'm thinking, man, how can we, I'm not even thinking about like, obviously I don't own the Marlins. I don't have any stake in the Marlins, but I'm like, just as baseball as a whole, why can't we reach out to all these people and say, this is an event. This is fun. Uh, I don't know. I think it's going to be a year, years long process. It's not just about sending an e follow-up email to people that bought tickets to the world baseball class and say, Hey, are you interested in tickets to the Rangers or the twins? Nevertheless, keeping on this theme of excitement and potentially changing fans in this new season that we just started, what excites you about the 2023 Marlins as they start as they've started now in arguably the toughest division in all of Major League Baseball? I would say it starts with the fact there seem to be actual stakes on this season for the Marlins. There is a lot of pressure from the fan base, and there is pressure on the general manager, Kim Ang to actually markedly improve the team from where it has been the last couple of years when they were under her direction. And that, that's something new. This is not a team ever since the ownership transition. And even going back further, it's not a team that typically sets expectations heading into an individual season. They, um, they, they like to under promise and over deliver even without, and you could say that maybe they haven't even succeeded in that so far. And this year feels different with the, I guess it starts with the money that invested by ownership, that this is the highest payroll they've had in a large number of years, and that they brought in a lot of veteran players as well. For a team that typically is on the younger ends of the spectrum, they have pushed a lot of their chips into the table for this year. And it's really like a multi-year window, but it starts this year for a team that they feel like has a path to reaching the playoffs if a certain number of things break their way for there to actually be those expectations for them to feel that they need to make a change at manager and the coaching staff in addition to all those player personnel changes like that alone is a nice encouraging step in the right direction and put it setting themselves up where there are going to be even further consequences if they fall short of reaching that level um the fact that they have actual star power on the team that's another bonus with Sandy Alcantara coming off one of the arguably the best pitching season the franchise has ever had in looking much the same so far in 2023 and to have Jazz Chisholm Jr., a very unique player in the, really the history of the Marlins, to have somebody that has so much national and international appeal, despite being really unaccomplished to this point in his career, having him alone as just a character, forget being like a player on the team, but just having a character that's affiliated with the team that is not shy about exuding confidence and not shy about speaking out about particular things uh, on and off the fields like that alone adds a whole lot of um, an extra dimension to following along with the team to have somebody like that. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Just having um, th those type of storylines and to have a team that is relevant, even if they're not a, a great team at this point, and even at the path for them to being an average team is a, a little treacherous, as you say, going through the division that they're in. This is a team that is more relevant than it has been in a while. That's a good point. And when you had said that, you know, normally we don't have this expectation. I think the last season that the Marlins had this had air quotes expectations was 2017, I believe it was, when they had Marcelo Zuna in the outfield, Christian Yelich, um, Giancarlo Stanton, and I think that was the year Stanton hit the 50 home runs and and won the MVP. And when you were saying about the relevancy and putting pressure, I thought of it, this is not it, it's not a sexy signing, but Johnny Cueto, a good solid pitcher that normally I don't see. I, I normally I wouldn't think of the Marlins going after someone like that. Your your third or fourth starter to complement and potentially mentor, for lack of a better word, some of the younger star power, not just the pitchers but also the bullpen and I guess the rest of the team. And going back to Jazz Chisholm Jr., how do you feel about having him, I guess, sacrifice himself, not sacrifice himself, not so much, but sacrifice himself for the betterment of the team, moving from his natural position of second base out to center field, where a lot more is expected of you physically to run because he, he, he relies so much on his legs. And I'm thinking, will he get worn down playing in center field versus a more range compact uh, position like second base the the complicated part of that is for the betterment of the team um that's that's an open question as to whether it actually will make the team better the early returns um well I'll bring you back to when they made that decision to put him there which was in late 
January, right after acquiring Luis Arise, people like did the math and they say, you have too many second basemen on this team. Where are they going to play? And then Kim Eng said, well, Jazz is going out to center field. He immediately um, took the step to announce that he, he thinks he's going to be a gold glove level player out there. He began working, taking private lessons with one of the best center fielders of all time, Ken Griffey Jr. He put in the work during the, off, the rest of that offseason, as well as during spring training, and it raised hope that he can make this very unusual transition smoothly. As we've seen it unfold, that just hasn't been the case. There have been so many situations already in a small sample going back to spring games and has continued during the regular season where you just see it's a it's a player that is doing something totally unfamiliar to him. So there are decisions that he's making out there that are just not good baseball decisions. He is showing his speed, but not always like running the routes and getting the reads that you'd expect somebody in that position. And you could tell the difference at this highest level. Maybe you couldn't tell if he was playing in the minor leagues, but you could tell at the highest level that this is somebody that this is not what it's supposed to look like for somebody out there in that position. That being said, they have so much belief in his offense that if he does hit and steal bases and overall contribute on that end at the level he's capable of, that will greatly overshadow anything that happens on defense. So for him to, if he, there's an opening for him to play there every single day while also keeping these other new additions in the lineup on the infield positions, that's going to be a net positive for the team. Um, understandably, this is, this continues to be the very biggest storyline surrounding the team um, for him to be in that spot. I think just about everybody around the team thinks that this is just a very temporary solution that they're, they're probably not going to leave him out there through the course of his prime years, um, eventually they're going to bite the bullet and pay the steep acquisition cost that it takes to acquire an established center fielder, whether it's via trade, via free agency, most likely via trade, and that he'll go back to the infield where he's where he showed himself as recently as last year to be a pretty good defensive second baseman. So this is a very temporary, very strange chapter in the team's history. Uh, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic it will look better at the end of the year than it will at the beginning of the year. Um, of course, the question is whether the team will be close enough to being in that postseason mix later in the year for it to matter. Will, will this cost them too much in the short term for it to make any sense as we get to the later portion of the season? Yeah, I, I'm more of the, I think in probably in the majority that, I, yeah, it's, it's going to take a lot for the Marlins to get into that third wildcard spot, only because it's just so... It, it is tough, but at the same time, you look at like the National League Central, which they're pretty, besides the Cardinals, the Brewers always put up a fight. I don't know. I mean, maybe the Marlins can get in. I'm not sure, but you're very much embedded in the Miami Marlins. You've been a fan for a long time. You went, you went to school at the University of Miami. By the way, did you go, did you ever go, or do you, do you manage to catch any of the, the UM uh, college baseball games? Sure, sure. I, I broadcasted a couple of those games as well when I was over there at uh, Mark Light Field, as mm-hmm. they call it. So, and, yeah, yeah, their their team is is pretty good um, in recent years as well. Um, so I went during a time where the football program was as um, messy, as discombobulated as ever. And so, the, yeah, the, I have a special interest in the baseball and basketball programs there because those are the ones that surprisingly are uh, still more competitive on a year-to-year basis. Yeah, they, 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 the Hurricanes men's team went to the Final Four, and I think the women's team went to the Elite Eight, I believe. I don't, I don't remember. They went far. They also but... snuck to the Final Four. Oh, they went to the Final Four. Team. Okay, that's that's excellent. Well, you're obviously embedded in the Marlins. In, I guess just South Florida baseball as a whole, where does your original love for baseball come from? Oh, that goes back to my father for sure. Uh, he's been, he's always been a diehard Yankees fan from my earliest memories. He always was watching games on a consistent basis. And uh, I think through that, I started playing from my earliest memories. I, I have a twin brother as well. And he started playing at the same time. Um, his fade, his love for the game faded pretty quickly. He's more of a casual fan right now, but we grew up together. And, and naturally when you have two people that could play catch with one another, um, just around each other, that itself uh, keeps you really attached to the game on a certain level. It starts with him, and I, I guess the rest, most of my immediate family, also pretty big baseball fans and predominantly Yankees fans as well. Just having it all around me all the time, having memorabilia all around the house of um, previous teams, and coming up during a time where the Yankees uh, intersecting pretty well with that three-peat they had 
in the late 90s, early 2000s, just to have the team returning to dominance during formative years. That was that certainly kept my interest. And pretty soon after, it just expanded to all baseball. I remember as far back as middle school, just starting doing my own research. It quickly expanded from just Yankees to all baseball, where I remember hopping on baseballreference.com and just poking around as somebody that was always really enamored with numbers and how that worked. Um, I kind of was, I self explored my baseball fandom in a different way. Once I got my own personal computer, just experimenting and, and seeing what was happening around the league, seeing how current players compared to previous players statistically. Uh, and from there, um, yeah, I've always been at every level. I've, aside from my early childhood, I've been, more of a general baseball fan, more than any particular team. Um, of course, right now, more of my interest is focused on the Marlins than any other. Um, but it is a just general fascination with the sport as a whole and with Major League Baseball as a whole. Oh, definitely. And I always like to ask this for any New York guests. What stadium do you prefer? City Field where the Mets play or Yankee Stadium, obviously, where the Yankee play, Yankees play as a spectator when you go as a game day experience? It's really close. It's I, I I probably am higher on Yankee Stadium than typical person, but I'm also uh, I'm, I'm, this what City Field has is um I think that's probably right up there with the highest standards of fan experience in baseball at this point. Uh, to top it all off, what they do concessions wise at City Field Breach. is uh, is pretty quickly getting towards the top of the chart. I, I saw from this year, I may sneak over there this weekend um, or coming up pretty soon. I'm going to sneak over there for the first time this season. And it sounds like they have even new uh, extravagant concessions offerings than they've had in the past. That's something that I don't think Yankee stadium has been quite as creative with trying to explore, I, but I've had generally, I'm, I'm pretty um, satisfied with the way that both of those have uh, served their fans. Uh, you know, I, I'm I I prefer City Field over the new Yankee Stadium, but I do like the fact that both of them are a block away from you know you take the train either way up to up to the Bronx or out to Queens on the seven. You're in a five minute walk. You're at the stadium. What I didn't like about a Yankee Stadium was when you go in to I guess the just the entrance. I kind of felt like you're like at TSA or something. They have it's almost like really overly heavy security. As there's not, it's not that there's not security at CD Field, but it just felt more of baseball and Yankees at the Yankees stadium. I didn't like that security aspect. And you hit the nail right on the head with the concessions. The food at Yankee Stadium is just normal baseball stadium, even though to their credit, they have improved since they opened it up well now well over 10 years ago. But CD Field's food just for me just just blows everyone out of the uh, out of the water. And I think that's an important part from my experience to go see in uh, a baseball game. And I definitely yeah, I'm definitely going to try to make it to uh, City Field when the Braves are in town uh, against the Mets, and that's going to be fantastic because that's you know those are two World Series contenders. They're both in a National League East, so that'll be uh, really interesting. I wanted to go back to you had mentioned that about uh, the University of Miami, Mark Light Field. Those of you who don't know, University of Miami has a historically one fantastic one of the top college baseball programs. I noticed that you worked at WVUM. The voice of the University of Miami. Those of you who don't know, it's the college radio station in Miami from the University of Miami. In my humble opinion, not just mine, WVUM has it's the best radio station in Miami. Always has the most amazing music. I've come across so many um, artists because you know the, the 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 DJs at WVUM play this just whatever the heck they want. My question: I've always, I've really always wanted to ask this: Why in the world? Does everyone sound, you know, you know, your tagline is, well, you're not there anymore, is WVUM, keep it locked. Is it a requirement to have that voice for all the DJs? Because I swear to you, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, they all have that very, like, keep it locked. So as the unofficial I representative don't. of WVUM. Uh, from my memories of, of being there, I don't think it's a firm requirement. But you know what I'm talking but about, right? I, I do know what you're talking about. But uh, I was there as a general one that brought me on. We, uh, it's, instead of I wasn't like a solo DJ for any particular time. I was there for sports talk when I was brought on the show, and there were several of us bantering back and forth on the air all the time. So that that's a good question. I, I wish I could answer it as to whether that's more of an emphasis now than it used to be. From yeah, from my time, they never 
pressure. <laughs> there was no particular instructions on that. I am very proud of, of that program. And um, from even some people that I was co colleagues with at the time and seeing them continue to evolve and grow in this industry, the radio voice of the Marlins right now, Kyle Seeloff, he is a WVUM alum as well. And so he has been with the Marlins for a number of years uh, behind the scenes. And this is his first full year now as their everyday play-by-play -play radio voice. <laughs> so that it's a very distinct radio station that they have. And uh, they're doing a lot right to put guys in positions, guys and women in positions to have careers in this once they graduate. Yeah, I again, uh, I absolutely love WVUM. I'm always listening to it if I'm in the car. And it's, uh, yeah, so congratulations on that. I genuinely love WVUM. You have, as you had mentioned, you, you've done radio for the University of Miami College baseball program. You've written at, at the national level, I believe, I believe with the Bleacher as a baseball writer. Now you're managing editor of the of Fish Stripes that focuses on the Miami Marlins. I guess as a professional and, and as a fan, what is your favorite medium to interact with the game? Is it talking about it in real life? Is it be able to take a step back and have a few days to write something? Or is it copywriting other copy editing other people's work? Tell us about what you what you enjoy the most or what you enjoy from each one of those jobs. Uh, the additional vertical from that is the social media side. And I found so much joy in what we do on Twitter, on our Fish Stripes Twitter account, um, since that was something that pre-existed before I took over. But some of the things we've done over there to build a sense of community, the instantaneousness of that platform is something that I uh, I really value, something that I feared uh, in recent months with uh, Elon Musk taking over and some of the ideas he's had for the platform that have uh, made people consider whether they want to stay on it. So at this point, some of those, most of those concerns have been unfounded and things have continued to be normal as I've known them in previous years. That is what I've, I've found a tremendous amount of, that's been a surprising growth area for us. And I, even when times are tough for the team itself, um, experiencing games in particular over that period, in that way, on that platform, uh, on really mundane experiences turning into really powerful, sometimes semi-viral moments, not just interacting with fans of the team, but even something as, as very niche as connecting with institutions and people that are related to the players themselves. Like to give you an example, Nick Fortes, he is the backup catcher on the Marlins. He, he had one highlight in a recent game where he threw out a runner. He made just this amazing throw to second base. And I made a six second video of him making that throw and it gets caught on by his college, his alma mater, um, Ole Miss. And they find it, that, that baseball program, and the way it got disseminated to all these people in, in that circle as well, uh, beyond just the Marlins fans that really like this player and think he's has a lot of potential, for it to branch out to all these people, these this additional community that perhaps only casually follows this player almost every single, maybe not every day, but certainly every week or very regularly. I just have those moments where something I'm talking about with our own community explodes into several other different communities around there. So in addition to what we have on the website and those that follow our podcast, what we've done with live streaming over the last couple of years on video the last couple of years and have people in the live chats that sort of blends social media with podcasting and that we're having this conversation and yet we can pull up these comments in real time and incorporate them into our show. There've been a lot of different ways that we have created that sense of the community. And that's kind of what keeps me going. The fact that we have people that are that interested in being involved with our content in that intimate way. That is exciting. And I think the next step for you is to maybe do some kind of hologram baseball program, baseball TV, something like that. Cause you, you're, you're, you've been doing everything. That's the next step. And it's the 21st century. Anyways, Eli, we're going to, we're going to take you away from the being the managing editor of fish tripes. Your new position is the new commissioner of Major League Baseball. What's one or two things that you would do to change the game however you want? It doesn't matter. It can be on the field. It can be in the in the front office, whatever you want. What would Commissioner Eli do to change the, to change the game of baseball? Uh, these aren't super original ideas, but the other ones I feel strongly about, uh, I find it so unacceptable in this day and age that we have as many 
games as we do have postponed due to inclement weather. Um, this sport having that situation, whereas all other major sports simply have evolved beyond that concern, I, I really can't believe that we continue to live in a world where so many of these ballparks are affected by weather. Like moving forward, I'd make it a requirement that any new ballpark should be a retractable roof ballpark. That doesn't mean keeping it closed uh, most days of the year. I guess every team could have their own threshold for whether that roof needs to be open or not. But the fact that just very intermittent rain or even something like the threat of rain could like push across these very important games and push them off schedule for all the people that make long trips just to see one particular game and plan that far in advance and to have those plans totally ruined just because of very minor uh, precipitation is something that I feel like the game needs to evolve for. So I'd make that a requirement for new ballparks. I would incentivize current ballparks to somehow add those roofs if it is uh, even possible to do so maybe rewarding those cities with future all-star games if they're able to add those roofs to their current arrangements to avoid this inconvenience. For that to affect not only regular season games, but very frequently postseason games is something that I feel like we can evolve past that being a concern with the technology and with the money that is in the sport today to address that. So that's one thing. Um, beyond that, with this extra ending rule, I feel like there has been a general acceptance of it as the new reality that you go into extra innings and there's an automatic runner on second base. Um, I still think that there should be a, a few, a little bit of a buffer between the end of regulation and then that runner on second. I, I feel like it should start after 12 innings, perhaps if the game is still not decided after 12 innings, then bring it in to end things for, for games to so abruptly get decided for, especially low scoring games and well-pitched games to be decided just because of a gimmick like that when we don't even give it a chance to play out. Uh, it, it'd be my thought to have it take effect. Have Let's go one time through the order in extra innings before it is that you're totally changing the name of the game and how things get done. Those are the things um, top of mind. I think we're moving in the right direction. The pitch clock is something that this year has been such a joy, uh, exceeded my expectations for how that speeds things up and uh, improves things. So I need to give some credit to commission, the real commissioner on some of the things she's done recently that I think have panned out pretty well. I completely agree with you on the fact that we shouldn't be having rain delays in the 21st century. And as you know, the New York Mets home opener against the Miami Marlins postponed because of silly rain or not really rain, but whatever. The point is weather. My, uh, Eli, I want to be respectful of your time. My last question, which I always ask all the guests is, What's what's one of your local favorites in Miami, whether it's to grab some coffee, food, maybe a drink? Give us one or two places you like going before or after a Marlins game. I would say the place that I just discovered during the latest trip down there this year was uh, I'm not a coffee guy. I am I'm a full meal guy. I'm a I have a sweet tooth. I'm a desserts guy. So one recent discovery I made is a chain called Salty Donuts, which is exactly what it sounds like. It has these gourmet donuts and it makes them um, yeah, incredibly salty. And it's this blend of sweet and salt that um, I maybe I've tried it before on certain occasions, but this was an extra level of, um, of detail that they put into both the donut designs and the way that those flavors mesh with each other. I found it actually probably right when I was leaving and like ending my trip down there right before I left. I, I wanted to grab something quick to eat, but I also wanted to make sure that it was something uh, that I couldn't get once I left town. And that's something that popped uh, popped up to me. And I was able to get a good deal on it as well. They gave, gave me a first-time customer discount when I went in there. So that's something that I have to very highly recommend. I asked around as well to see if any of my friends were familiar with it, and they were. So there's uh, multiple recommendations for salty donuts if you're down there. I think they have a handful of locations throughout both Miami and also further up north, West Palm Beach, Broward County, right. et cetera. I, I have a sweet tooth as well. I got to look that up. So and if you're saying they have multiple locations across Miami, I got to I got to go check that out. <laughs> Eli, I want to thank you so much for joining us this week. Again, everyone, Eli Sussman, Managing Editor of Fish Stripes. Eli, if you want to take us away on where they can find some of your work and obviously you on social media. 
Yeah, you can find me personally on Twitter. I'm on Twitter far too much, more than it should be, at Real Eli, spelled E-L-Y at the end. I know it's an unusual spelling. Um, but other than that, yeah, when you put in Fist Stripes uh, on any platform, any search bar, you can find me pretty easily. I oversee the Fist Stripes accounts, and I oversee the Fist Stripes website, which is fiststripes.com. And uh, yeah, all of our many outlets as we expand to TikTok, and YouTube and Instagram as well. All that simply at Fist Stripes, uh, keeping it pretty simple. So this is, yeah, this is the fun part of the season. This is the the endless roller coaster of emotions um, as the regular season gets underway. Um, this is, yeah, this is my busiest time of year, but you, you got me at a perfect time to record this. So I appreciate you inviting me on. Thanks to Eli Sussman for joining us this week. And I also want to thank some new listeners, even though we also are always very appreciative of loyal listeners. Our new listeners this week are from New Cannon, Connecticut, Rio Rancho, Rio Rancho, New Mexico, League City, Texas. Are these even real places? But we still thank you for listening. Willing, Willingboro, Willingboro, New Jersey, East Orange, New Jersey, and internationally, Vigo, Spain, Venice, Italy, Santiago de Cali, and another town or city in Colombia called Ipiales in the country, South American country of Colombia, Orangeburg. I don't know where this is. This may be in South Carolina. It may be in New York. Two towns in South Korea called Namgu, Namgu and Guanghuagun. Oh my God, I am butcher. I cannot speak one word of Korean. Guang. Ganghua Gun, South Korea. <laughs> Look, I'm not laughing at you. I just I'm laughing at my horrible Korean. Erith, England, and a place called Banbung, Indonesia. You know what you also can listen to when you're in Miami? WVUM. I'm serious. Just like in the in the interview with Eli, I love WVUM. I my one of my dreams is to be a guest DJ on WVUM. So hopefully we can make it happen, people. Before I become a DJ on WVUM, I'm going to thank you for listening, and we will get together next week for a brand new episode of HBP, Hipster Baseball Podcast. Bye.